The Holy Gospel according to John, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. We are going to take a look at the first reading today from Isaiah 62, and then we're going to take a dive into the Gospel reading for today from John 2. And you know, in my mind, anyway, it's all going to kind of tie together into what we're going to call a sermon for today. Isaiah 62 is from what is called by scholars, Third Isaiah, which refers to the last 11 chapters of Isaiah, which come from a later time than the other chapters in Isaiah, and which were addressed to the Jews who had been exiled in Babylon, but were now back in Jerusalem because the Persians had come in and had defeated the Babylonians. And when they did, they told the Jews they could go back home to Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem they returned to was a city which now lay in defenseless ruin. Its mighty walls, its beautiful temple had been destroyed and leveled by the Babylonians years earlier and remain that way yet today. In other words, they are back home now, yes, but these are hard times and discouraging times and the people are discouraged. That's the context of what is called Third Isaiah, 11 chapters at the end of the book of Isaiah, which were written to encourage the discouraged, which you can surely hear in our text for today. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land no more termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries 
a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There are all manner of images in scripture to describe the relationship of God with God's people. Here the image is that of God as a groom and God's people as a bride, a bride whom God loves, a bride of whom God rejoices, a bride to whom God has pledged God's loving faithfulness and a bride who, wed to her husband, will in this case take his name, the name that he will give to her, her husband's name for her in this case being a not glamorous sounding Hebrew word, Hephzibah, but a beautiful meaning Hebrew word, for Hephzibah means my delight is in her. I think of a young couple getting married today, specifically a young couple, let's say they're grad students who aren't planning a destination wedding to Jamaica or a honeymoon in Hawaii or a dress from the folks at say yes to the dress, but will instead have a very small church wedding and a little church basement reception and, and an off the rack dress. And the, the groom will wear the same suit that he actually wore when he graduated because they have almost nothing. Except that's not even remotely how they think or feel today because they have each other and they love each other and they know that it won't be easy and they do not know what the future will hold for them. But here's what they do know. They will meet the future with their love for each other for that will be before God and a few close family and friends their wedding promise. And right now, at this point in their lives, it is absolutely all they need. And they have never, ever felt deeper joy than the joy they feel right here and now today. For this is joy that is not about riches and material things that money can get us. This joy is about the deepest riches there are, for they are the riches of all the things that actually aren't things, but are the things that love gives us. So too, says the prophet Isaiah to God's people who are struggling to build a new life amidst rubbles of things, you are loved. God has promised, and whatever the future holds, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, God will walk with you for good and toward good and loving you good, always. Brides, by the way, in those days, and it's important to take note of this to understand some dynamics here, brides in those days did not choose their husbands. Rather, a bride's uh, marriage then was arranged for her. Sometimes it was the, the groom himself, who perhaps was established enough in life and did the arranging. Sometimes it was the groom's parents who did the arranging. Sometimes, because eHarmony and Match.com were really new at this time, they had barely even begun to catch on. So sometimes a third party, a matchmaker, assisted with the choosing and arranging. You've all seen Fiddler on the Roof, you know these things. But the bride, and we can talk about how unfair this is as long as we want to, because surely it was, but the bride never did the choosing. 
The bride was chosen, which is important to know, for it helps us hear this text saying something that Scripture over and over and over again does say, that being that God's bride, God's people, God's dearly beloved, are God's own by God's choosing, God's arranging, God's matchmaking, which is to say, of course, finally, God's grace. We see that in 3rd Isaiah, and a people promised life and love beyond their bondage to the destructive powers of Babylon. It would be seen again five centuries later on a cross, and a people promised love and life beyond their, their bondage to the destructive powers of sin and death. And of course, too, it would be seen 19 or 20 centuries later than that, when in the waters of baptism, you most, if not all of you, being too young even to know what was going on, much less to have done any choosing about the matter, God said to you, here I am, and I choose as my own you. Which takes us to the Gospel reading for today and another marriage story. In this case, the story of a young couple who were getting married and who'd invited Jesus and his mom and uh, a few of these just recently gathered followers that Jesus had, had begun gathering to their wedding, which was in a little town called Cana in Galilee, which was just just a few miles down the road from a little town called Nazareth in Galilee. Wedding parties in those days, by the way, the wedding and the party afterwards lasted for days, and so the couple of people stayed for days. But in the case of this wedding, something went seriously wrong as they ran out of wine, which was seriously embarrassing, something that would cast embarrassment and shame upon this young couple at the very beginning of their relationship, they'd probably always be the couple that ran out of wine. Mary heard about it somehow, said to Jesus, they're out of wine. Mothers being mothers, of course, this was not just an observation, right? It was Mary saying, do something. Though to be clear, it's not clear what specifically she was asking him to do. It's not clear what she specifically even thought that maybe he could do. I mean, it's easy to sit here back now and think, well, she was expecting a miracle. Was she expecting a miracle? John says he'd never done one of those before. Then again, this is a woman who had talked to angels about her son. Maybe she did expect things and know things that others didn't. Whatever she was expecting, Jesus' response was, Mom, ixnay, that kind of octay, it's not my imtay. I.e., I don't want to do anything right now, Mother. It's neither the place nor the time for such. Which, and of course, surely, Mary is not the only mother, the first or the last in the history of mothers to take this approach, which was that when he said what she didn't want him to say, she just proceeded to act like he hadn't said it. And instead, turned to the catering staff and said, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus then does do something as his mother had between the lines asked. 
which could all add up to a story about Jesus being a good and obedient son and isn't that nice, but could it also be something more than that? I asked that thinking about the fact that, of course, Christians believe that Jesus was the divine son of God. But we also believe that he left behind some of his fullness of his godness in order to also fully to become the human son of Mary. I mean, can you be fully human? Can you be fully one of us? Can you be fully like us if you know everything? I don't think so. I think being fully human, as the Bible even defines being fully human, means trusting God amidst things that you specifically don't know. And Jesus became fully human. Which leads to the something more I'm wondering might be going on in this story. I'm wondering if Mary in this moment knew and expected things about her son that even he, at this point in his life anyway, didn't. Maybe because she had talked to angels, maybe she and she alone at this point knew and or expected that right now was precisely the I'm Tay for Jesus to come out and do something. Which to me would mean that when she said to others, do whatever he says, after what he had said to her was, I don't want to do anything, maybe that response was not a matter of ignoring her son, but rather a matter of having faith in her son's father. Which reminds me of something else that scripture says in many places besides this place, that being that all of us seeking to live in faith, faith in the Father and the Son, all of us, even in this case, if we are Jesus, which of course we are not, but all of us at all times, and by all of us I mean even Jesus as a real life person this time, do in fact all need others sometimes to know and to grow into becoming and to step out into being who God created us into the world to be. For discovering in who we are and who we are meant to be is best done not entirely in isolation but also in relationship and conversation with those who know us and who love us and who love God with us. And to take it even one step further, because I think this text does this as well, discovering who we are and who we are by God meant to be, who we were by God created and given into the world to be, happens best and most fully of all when we not only, with open ears, listen to those who love and believe with us, but also with open hearts, listen to the needs of those around us. Needs which may not, sometimes in the grand scheme of things, seem like they're that much of a big deal at all. So why should I do anything at all? Except that to somebody whom God loves, it is a big deal. As was the case for these newlyweds, when their event coordinator tapped them on the shoulder and said something went wrong with the order. Somebody dropped a zero. We were supposed to get 200 bottles of wine. They only sent 20 and they're gone. And Mary knew that it was time. 
time for Jesus to begin being who he was given by God to the world to be. So he turned to six stone jars that were there. These were water jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, which were there, writes John, for the Jewish rites of purification. Jews understood, indeed Jewish law required, that in the presence of others, surely in the presence of food, above all, in the presence of God, one needed to be clean. And so in gatherings at homes and synagogues and temples, and for that matter even in upper rooms, water for cleansing and purifying was always provided. Fill the jars with water, he said to the servers, and they did. Now take some to the sommelier, they, he said to them, and they did. And the sommelier, John writes, tasting the water that had now become wine, said to the groom, wow. Everybody else buys cases, maybe a couple cases of good wine, and then when the taste buds have become less discriminating because of wine, brings out the three-buck chuck, but you've saved the best for last. Indeed, the way, way best did come for last, and not just in the form of a couple of cases, because there were six big jugs, 20 to 30 gallons per jug. Remember, I did the math at 750 milliliters a bottle. That means about five bottles per gallon. Jesus made somewhere between six and 900 bottles of the good stuff. A contact I have in the business <laughs> tells me that that when they serve a wedding reception, their starting point for their house wines cost to the couple is $25 a bottle. And they go up to options of $200 a bottle. The wine Jesus made, I'm sure, was as good or better than the $200 a bottle stuff. Which, with that as a frame of reference, would make the wedding gift Jesus gave to this couple worth, well, let's just say $150,000. Which, of course, is not the point. But it is a point that is made in this story because it points to the point. That point being that there ain't nothing as abundantly good as the good Jesus came to offer to the world with a kind of abundance that isn't and can't be offered by or found in anything or anyone else in the world. And that, John then says, was the very first one of what John and his gospel will continue to call not miracles. That was the very first, John said, the very first one of the signs that Jesus did. Signs being things that aren't about themselves, right? Signs being things that tell you something or point you in the direction of something. And his newly gathered group of followers, John then concludes by saying, believed in him. For they saw not a miracle, but a sign. A sign which said loudly, 
that he was the one that they and the whole world had been waiting for. And they followed him. Followed him all the way to another gathering. This one in Jerusalem, this one in an upper Rome. Where again he took liquid from one ritual, in this case wine that was already wine, and transformed it into more than ritual, transformed it into grace. When he said, drink of it, and drink of me, for the forgiveness of your sin, and for life that is life with me, for richer, for better, forever. And not even death will separate you from me. I promise. In the meantime, he more than a few other places said, Go, go into all the world and tell all that all are invited to the party where there is abundantly more than enough for all. Of course, sometimes, and sometimes for sure, the best way to tell others that is to tell others that, to say the words, Jesus, and Jesus loves you. But other times, other times for sure, the best way to tell others that is to show them that. To do Jesus' love by seeing the needs, big or small, of your neighbor and doing what you can do because Jesus' love is not just for you. It's for all. Amen.